Hey, this is Neil Mackay, your host of a Vietnam podcast. Now, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to share with you about one of my favorite affiliate partners, and that is Fiverr. I've been using Fiverr for years for everything from ordering YouTube thumbnails to keyword research, writing podcast articles, even to Canva designs and thumbnails and more. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a podcaster, or anyone in between, Fiverr has got you covered. It really is the go-to platform if you want to find freelancers offering a massive range of services to help you on any project. Maybe you need a stunning new logo or just a short animation, whatever you need, you can find it on Fiverr. What I love the most is how easy Fiverr makes it to connect with talented freelancers from around the world, all at prices that will fit whatever your budget is. Plus, with Fiverr's secure payment system, you can trust that your transactions are safe and secure. No dodgy people you meet on Facebook groups that disappear with your money and never give you what you want. What, that's only happened to me? As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you use the link and at no extra cost to you. As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you click my link and you buy something, all at no extra cost to you. And best of all, you will be directly supporting the making of this podcast that you're listening to for free, but it is not free to make. So why we head over to somewhere that you've probably never been before. It's called the show notes. So whatever app you're listening in, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything at all, head to the show notes, click on my special link, and then you can browse thousands of gigs ready to help you with your next project. And now, let's dive into today's episode. Let's go. Thank you for listening to 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. We share the stories of people with a love for Vietnam. My name is Neil Mackay, and I'm your host. I love talking to people, but more than anything, I love listening. I've lived in Vietnam since 2016 and started this podcast to know more about the interesting people that live in Saigon, a crazy, bustling, energetic city. Over the seasons, the show has grown and we now talk to people from all over the world who have a Vietnam story to share. In this episode, we have another fantastic guest. We've talked a lot about the plight of the Vietnamese boat people recently. Zunin Nguyen experienced this directly. She left Saigon with her family on the last day possible, April 30th, 1975. She'll share with you a miraculous escape that eventually led the family to Canada. She returned to Saigon for the first time in 1995 and shares how this changed her life forever. She left her high-flying corporate career to become a speaker, coach, and mentor for women entrepreneurs launching and growing their business. Thank you to Zuni for joining us and enjoy this episode. On April 30th, 1975, that morning, all I knew is that we can hear the bombs and, and it sounded so real, Neil. It was like almost in the back of my home. And so my parents were 
yelling, we're screaming, everybody out, everybody out, we're going, we're leaving. On that boat for three days, two nights, under the sun, no water, no food. There was a man next to me who, I don't know if he's a spy or what he was, but he shot himself in the head. I had his brains on me. Every day we had brown rice, brown rice for morning, lunch, and supper. And you know, until today, I cannot eat brown rice. I know it's healthier, but I cannot touch brown rice. So we were in that camp for a couple of months. And I remember UNHCR coming in and helping us to see if uh, we can apply to go to another country. I'm the first one to make peace with my past. When I decided to go back, it scared my family. My parents begged me not to go. They said, please don't go because they, they were scared. It was emotional nil. We were supposed to be there for five weeks nil, and we only stayed for three weeks. And I'll tell you why. It was so emotional for me to see families after 20 years and them telling me all these horror stories. Become a member of the 7 Million Bikes community and you'll get free tickets to our events, free 7 Million Bikes face masks, episodes a day early, behind-the-scenes content and invites to special events for community members. The link is in the show description, so check it out and join today. Thank you so much to our existing community members. We look forward to seeing you again soon. This season, we've gifted sponsorship of a Vietnam podcast to two amazing charities close to our hearts, the Blue Dragon Children's Foundation in the North and Saigon Children's Charity in the South. Please check out the links in the description to learn more about these amazing organizations and donate if you can. Enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for another episode of a Vietnam podcast. I'm your host, Neil Mackay, and we have another fantastic guest today with an incredible story to share with you. She grew up on Win Tom Street in Saigon and left on the last day possible, April 30th, 1975, to escape and went through an exodus from hell on the last boat with 4,000 people. Her boat was sinking, but a miracle happened. And after many months in a refugee camp, she started a new chapter of her life in Canada. Then in 1995, she decided to come back to visit Saigon. And on that trip, it completely transformed and turned her life around. She is now known as a speaker, coach, and mentor for women entrepreneurs launching and growing their business. My guest today is Zuni Nguyen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Neil, for inviting me today on your podcast. It's an honor. I am so happy. You are very, very welcome. It's a crazy world where we make these connections. I made a post on a a podcast group and then suddenly I was connected with you and they said, you need to speak to Zuni and and share her story. And and then we connected by email. So I've been excited to get you on. Thank you. Thank you, Lourdes. She's an incredible connector, Neil. So I'm very grateful that she connected us. So look, let's go all the way back to um, the beginning then. So tell me about 
how you ended up in Canada? Because this is, a, I, I didn't tell you, but this is a common topic that's come up more and more lately on the podcast, not in the beginning, but now some of my guests have shared incredible stories about their parents. And um, we had Tracy and Wynn Mang on. I don't know, have you heard the, the podcast called Vietnamese Boat People? Yes. Uh, well, after you told me about it, I went to take a look and oh my God, some of the, I, I, I didn't listen to all of them, but it was so emotional for me to listen to some of the stories. I mean, kudos to Tracy Nguyen Mang. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, the work that she's doing to gather all these stories. So I'm, I'm not done yet. I have to listen to her episodes and your episodes. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, it's not as an, a much of an emotional connection for me, obviously not being Vietnamese, but yeah, I mean, her episodes are so, so emotional and it, it touched me because it is something that kind of unexpectedly came up. Like I, before I'd moved to Vietnam, like many people, I didn't know the real history of Vietnam or the boat people history. I had read much about it. And so now being exposed to it and it then guest after guest came on, like lots of VQs. And as you probably know, we've had a massive influx of young returning Vietnamese people coming back to explore their roots and their family's roots and things like this. And so through all these conversations, I've learned so much. And then it got to the point where I, I listened to the Vietnamese Boat People podcast and I was like, oh my goodness, I'd love to have Tracy on. So that was, for me, it was a big honor to have her on and we're still, we still connect and talk. So that was great. So when, when Lourdes then introduced us to each other and then you kind of gave me a brief uh, a brief on your story, I was like, wow. So this really ties into it. Like we have a lot of regular listeners who will be quite aware of the Vietnamese boat people play and what happened. But your story sounds incredible. So you left on the last day possible, April 30th, 1975. So if you're comfortable with that, do you want to tell, tell us more about that? So April 30th, that morning, just so give you a bit of context. So I was born in Saigon and grew up there for eight years because at the age of eight, on April 30th, 1975, that morning, all I knew is that we can hear the bombs and, and it sounded so real, Neil. It was like almost in the back of my home. And so my parents were yelling, were screaming, everybody out, everybody out, we, we're going, we're leaving. So I was in my pajamas, right? I was eight years old in my pajamas. And my I have five brothers, two sisters, there's eight of us. And all we knew is that we had to get out. And I we, we didn't know what was going on. So my my mom took the little ones in the car. There were my aunts, my three aunts and two babies. I was in a scooter with my sister and my brother with my dad. So we all split up. And this is, this is crazy. Like I'm talking to you and I'm reliving it because it was so chaotic on the street and the bombs and the, you can hear the, the gunshots. And all we knew is that my mom said, we're going to meet at the port on, in Saigon. And she gave us like a specific point. I can't remember the point, but she says, we're all going to split and we're meeting there. Now, where we live uh, on Wintown Street, this is about maybe half an hour, 40 minutes from the port of Saigon. And you know, when my mom says that we're going to meet there, okay, we got, we're going to meet there. But when we got there, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people trying to push the fan so that we can actually get on the other side because there was one boat left. And that was the last boat because the airport was bombed. I mean, there was no way at that point, April 30th, Neil, the only way you can escape or leave is by that boat. 
Now, when we got there, of course, we couldn't find each other, but we had to push the fans and the gazillions of people. And we went to that point when my mom says to wait. And I think that's miracle number one. We found each other. We were 15. We were 15 scattered, motorbike, uh, bicycles, scooters, and cars. And we met. We found each other. So that was the first miracle for me. And when we got to that edge, the, the, you know, when my mom says to wait, well, the boat already left. We could see the boat. So between us and that boat, we couldn't swim. And so my, you know, I think at one point my parents said, wait here. She, they, my mom told all of us to wait there and they had to go find a way to get us to catch that boat. I know I was eight years old and I was just standing there and I was so afraid. And you know how sometimes you're afraid, but you can't, you, you can't speak. The, nothing comes out of your mouth. And I was just standing there and I remember imagining what if a bullet, or what if somebody shoots me? Like this is the kind of mind, frame of mind I was in, but I couldn't say anything. All I knew is I had to be good and not cry and not complain and just stand there and wait for mom and dad and, you know, with my brother, sisters. But I was imagining what would it feel like if a bullet would go through me? Like it was horrible. But anyways, so my parents found a man with a, a small boat and paid them everything they had, you know, with the Vietnamese down, which probably didn't worth, wasn't worth much the next day, you know, but so that man took 15 of us to go catch up with that big boat. And that big boat, the name is Tung Swan. And so when we caught up to that boat, there were so many people already. And the captain kept saying no more, no more, but people didn't listen. They were trying to climb, you know, those it's like a rope. It's like a ladder, but it's a rope. And so we were trying to get onto that boat. And I still remember my mom. My mom, my mom is my hero. My mom is always the last one. She always makes sure that we're there, we're safe, and then she would go. And I remember at one point her body was between the big boat and the last boat, like on the ladder. And we were we were screaming because we didn't want her to fall into the water. So it's just the kind of things that I remember Neil on that day. I think sardines have more space in, in their can than us on that boat. Because once we got onto the boat, we had to find a little corner and there were so many people. So you were just sitting there like this, you know, and you can't move. You just sit there. And then from there on, it was praying and hoping that the boat would start moving because it had mechanical problems. And we knew that. We knew what we were getting into. But we took a chance. My parents took a chance. I was just eight, <laughs> scared. So I wanted to go back just a little bit. So it's in this scene, right? Because for the, for the listeners here who maybe don't know, where was the port? For my knowledge, it was in District 4, right? So do you, yes. can you explain a little bit for the people who live in modern Saigon like me, what did Saigon look like then? Where was the port? You know, because then people can start to visualize, compare it to, to modern side. You know, if, if I had a map right now, it would help. I, mean, I can't tell you exactly. Yes, I believe it's in District 4, but we, we live in the city. So Town would be in District 1. Yeah, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so it, it uh, you know, it's like 30, 45 minutes. I, I would say my scooter, I was on a scooter, so it would take longer than the car and my brothers were on their bicycle. So we all took different routes. And, and, you know, 
it, it was so chaotic, Neil. On the street, people were screaming. People were trying to, you know, because the, the parallel is funny, Neil. While we were trying to get out of the country, well, the tanks, you know, were coming in. So it, it, it was, you know, I think back and we were trying to escape and the tanks were coming in to celebrate the reunification. But to answer your question, yeah, we live in the city in uh, District 1. And to get to the port, it, it's a good 30 minutes car ride. And, and I was eight. So I. <laughs> yeah, I know you're, I'm asking you questions. I don't remember what I did last week. Never mind what happened when I was eight years old. But what, so what was it like then? For you growing up during the war, like what, because do you know what, it's this pandemic, I've often compared this pandemic as my equivalent to living through a war, right? Because I've had a pretty easy life my whole life. I've not never had to live through any type of conflict or war in my situation, in the countries that I've lived. So I've had it pretty easy and this pandemic is obviously challenging for everyone. So I kind of compare it to like, well, you know, there's people that are, older than me that have lived through a war and I just can't but so what I try and kind of find some comfort during this pandemic is to think about even during a war which would be obviously absolutely horrible was life kind of normal most of the time and then the war was just something that was going on in the background or is it something that literally affects you day to day minute by minute in your life well you know we left on April 30th Neil in uh, 1975, but many months before that, it had started. Like we, we started to hear, I, I guess, on TV and heard my parents talking. And even I remember at school, like maybe around February, March 1975, I remember this one day we were at school and I went to private school and all of a sudden our teacher said, go hide under the table because we can hear the planes. We can hear the bombing and the gunshots. It sounded far, but it's at the same time, it sounded near enough. So I remember moments like that where we had to go hide under the desk in our classroom when we heard those planes. And a few weeks before April 30th, 1975, we were not allowed to go out on the street because I, we can hear the loudspeakers, you know, with someone, I guess, someone, the army or the government saying that, under no circumstance should you go out on the street, stay in your house. So it's, it, it was, I was only eight years old, but I, it was scary to, to know that we're not allowed to go out. And you know how it is, you live in the family. I mean, I have seven brothers, sisters, my parents are always whispering, talking, even if they're not explaining to us the situation, I can see it, the nonverbal, right? I can see it in their face. I can feel that they are worried. And so later on, I found out that my mom actually tried to leave a month before in March, 1975. But when she asked around, people say, forget it. You have too big of a family. It's going to be hard to get a plane or get a boat. So, but you know, people discourage her for leave, from leaving. But on, on that morning, April 30th, we had an angel, well, we, we call him Sorry, I speak French, so an ange gardien, a guardian angel. So this man called my dad and he said he's a friend of a friend and he's calling to let my dad know that if you guys still want to leave the country, there's one boat, only one. So go check it out. Like he, he's not sure because he's in the countryside, but he says, go check it out. And so my parents listened to that advice. And so they got all of us to leave, but 
they are not even sure themselves, Neil, that we were going to be able to get on that boat or find that boat. And so that's when my parents did not, we not, we didn't have any suitcase. I was in my pajamas and I, we left and we didn't know. We just thought, okay, we're going to go and probably it's not going to work out and we're going to come back. So that was the frame of mind that we had. And, and when we got there, we just jumped on the opportunity. You know, my mom today has chills when she thinks about it because the danger that she put her family in, you know, we could have, we could have lost each other because it happened to some families, you know, you scattered, you, you split and then you don't find each other and one get on the boat, the other one stays behind. So there's horrible stories like that. Mm. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps right now from you just telling me this. So, I mean, I can't imagine what your mum feels. And Tracy, maybe have you listened? Hers, hers was a similar story that her family escaped after 1975, but in three different trips. And somehow by a miracle, they all ended up uh, making it safely to the US. So I, I know that was a common thing, but it's it makes me, I, as I was saying too, that, that is the pandemic similar to a war? I thought to myself, Neil, you sound like an idiot. Of course it's not. And as you described what you went through, and even this this one moment, it's not even close really to what we are going through. In terms of like that absolute, these crucial moments of uh, life or death. But then again, maybe I might be just an idiot again as well, because there are people during this pandemic that are going through life or death moments, maybe just because I haven't done it myself or seen it doesn't mean that it isn't happening. But my next question I was going to ask you about that situation from what you described to me there about you being on the boat and like sardines. And this was something that came up in the news a lot. When you saw what happened in the, the fall of the in Af- Afghanistan and the, the Taliban coming back and we saw all the refugees on the, the planes and stuff, did that bring back a lot of memories? <laughs> definitely, definitely. Like even a few years ago, you know, with the Syrian, do you remember? Yeah. I was, I was on the news a lot being interviewed about how I felt, you know, seeing all these people stuck on a boat and no one's helping them. So to, 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 to give you a bit of more information, because you need to understand that, that boat part and, and you will understand how, when every time I see refugees, boat people, the war, it, it brings everything back. I am sitting here today. I, I've been in Quebec, Montreal since 1975, June. I'm 55 years old. And every time people ask me to tell the story, I feel like I just lived it yesterday. It, that's how much it stayed in my in my memory. So let me bring you back, Neil, just for a second on that boat, okay? So we, we got on that boat. And so for three days, yes, three days, two nights under the sun, no water, no food. Like I said, we all got on that boat and we didn't know if we, where we, all we knew is we just wanted to go away, go toward what they call international water to be safe. But of course you, the, the boat had mechanical problems and we were way too many people. The capacity of that cargo of that boat was about 500 and we were 4,000. So I, I'll let you imagine what, it, what it's like now. On that boat, there was a man next to me who, I don't know if he's a spy or what he was, but he shot himself in the head. I had his brains on me. Now, okay, so I, you know, we kept fainting. We kept, because we had no food, we had no water. And so he shot himself and I had 
blood on me and I passed out. I fainted. And I remember when I woke up, I had no, I had nothing on me. And I told my mom, I said, there's a, there's a man. He, he heard him, you know, and my mom kept saying, no, it was a nightmare. It's okay. Go back to sleep. You're fine. What she did is she wiped everything clean while I passed out so that it would not affect me. This is what my mother did. So I, <laughs> the boat was sinking on the second night. And I remember, you know, hearing the, the prayers. It, it was, you know, I think back and it was quite beautiful. It was scary. It was beautiful being with these thousands of people on the boat praying because we all thought we were dying. Some people jumped, they suicided, but, you know, water started coming in. And then that morning, on the third morning, a boat came to rescue us, a Danish boat called Clara Mask. And you see this boat and you think you're dreaming because you, you haven't eaten anything, you haven't drank for three days. So you think, okay, maybe this is, I'm hallucinating. But this big boat came and rescued us. And I remember everybody panicked on our boat. And I remember seeing kids being stepped on and because everybody wanted to get on that big boat. And once again, my mother, I don't know how she maintained her, how she stayed so calm. And today I know how this woman is packed with resilience and courage. And that's why she's my hero. So she told us, she paired us up two by two and she says, okay, go, go on that big boat and we're going to meet up there. I don't know. I don't know about the thing about splitting up and meeting up, but it seems to work. So she paired us up and because she knew that if we stayed as a cluster, we're all going to, you know, probably being stepped over or. So she told us to go two by two and we meet up on that boat. So that Danish boat actually picked up the SOS signal. I don't know how, but I found an interview with the captain on YouTube. I can send it to you if you want. He was quite emotional because when they found our boat and they see these thousands of people probably looking really sick because we didn't eat and we were so thirsty and we were so tired. So they rescued us and they took us to the closest island and that was Hong Kong. Now we made it to Hong Kong and uh, the Chinese said, you're not coming in. They said, go, go away, go back where you come, came from. And this is the part where I can relate to other, you know, the Syrian people, both people. And so the Queen Elizabeth was visiting, don't ask me, but she was there on May 2nd, 1975. She was visiting Hong Kong and she told the Chinese authority you cannot do this. It's not humane. You have to let them in. So I remember being on that big boat for, it's, it feels like it was a whole day to wait for the Chinese authority to open up a refugee camp of some sort so that we can step off the boat. But we were happy. And I've never seen so many blonde people with blue eyes and green eyes. It's a Danish boat with a lot. So it was, and we had cookies, we had milk. To me, it felt like Christmas and we knew that we were safe now, but we just wanted to be on land. You know, we didn't want to be on the boat anymore. And so my next couple of months was in the refugee camp, more like prison camp. If you ask me, we, we were not allowed to go out. We had to line up and every day we had brown rice, brown rice for morning, lunch and supper. And, you know, until today, I cannot eat brown rice. It's, <laughs> I know it's healthier, but I cannot touch brown rice. Because I ate a lot of that. So we were in that camp for a couple of months. And I remember UNHCR coming in and helping us to see if uh, we can apply to go to another country. 
and Australia and U.S. actually said yes. But my parents, they wanted to wait for Canada. I guess they were networking at the camp and they heard that Canada was a good country and we can speak French there. They understood French a little bit. And so they were waiting for Canada to accept us. And so, yeah, June 17th, I arrived in Canada, in Montreal, and that was my new chapter, my new home, my new life. Amazing. Incredible. Yeah, that's, that's what has really touched me. Obviously, I'm just uh, in awe here hearing this. It's amazing that your parents had the foresight to, to be choosy at that point and be picky and be like, no, 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 we don't want to go to Australia. No, America, no, no, no. We'll, we'll wait for Canada. We're, we're going to wait. We're going to wait. <laughs> I know, right? My mom has chills today. She says, uh, she doesn't know what she was thinking. What if Canada didn't take us? Then we'd be stuck in that refugee camp. And I'll tell you, Neil, I went back to live in Hong Kong to help the refugees later on in my life. And I met people who actually gave birth to their kids and met their spouse in the camp. So that could have been my parents. That could have been us. I could have been stuck in that camp in 1997 with a husband that I found in the camp and kids born in the camp. So yeah, it's, it's not a laughing matter. My mom took incredible chances and thank God. I mean, think maybe I'll reach out to Sarah Nguyen from, um, Nguyen Coffee Supply, who, who's been on the podcast before and she shared her, her parents' story. And if my memory serves me correctly, which my memory is not very good, but if my memory serves me correctly, our parents met in a refugee camp. They were in a refugee camp for several years. Oh, no, sorry. What it was, they were actually in the same refugee camp in Hong Kong for several years, but didn't meet until they got to America and then found out that they'd actually been in the same refugee camp. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I think that's a common thing because if you're there for a long time, obviously you're going you're going to build relationships with people and... So what was it like then when you got to Canada? So how, you were in the refugee camp for two months, did you say? Almost in two months, yeah. Seven weeks, I think. I, make, I know that I arrived on May 2nd and we left on June 17th. So yeah, I, I guess <laughs> you do the best. Do, do you have many memories from being in the refugee camp or was it just boring? Was it just the same thing day after day? Like what, what happened there? You know the thing, Neil, about being eight years old, and I feel so lucky that I was eight because I have two older brothers and two older sisters, and I think it affected them a lot more than me. And I have two younger brothers. So when you're eight years old, even on that boat, when we left during the chaos, for me, it was like, I'm going to school today. I'm going on a boat, which is an adventure in itself. And so I think there's something magical about that age. And so for me, you know, I, it's in the refugee camp. I didn't like the brown rice, but I was running around. I met kids and we managed to, you know, put our hands because the fans were, you know, my hands were small enough that I was able to put the hands out and then people would give me candies, you know, like strangers passing by because we're not allowed to go out of the camp. And I think people donated clothes and toys because I remember once a week we got to go to that hut and then there was lots of clothes and toys that we can pick. So, you know, I, I looked at it from the lens of an eight-year-old mm. child. I, I was safe. I had mommy and daddy and I had my brother, sisters, my aunts. So, it you know, I felt safe. But today, today that I'm a mother and I have kids, 
I can't imagine what my parents must be so worried because granted, we're not on a boat and our life is not in danger. But what about the future? Both my parents were very, they were professionals in Vietnam. They were, my dad had a business and my mom was a director of a health center. So they had a good life, a really good life. And so for them to all of a sudden being in this camp and not knowing what is the next step, what's going to happen to our kids. I, I can't even imagine what was going through their, their, you know, their minds. There must be freaking out if they can see that. And so, yeah, I, but life for me was, you know, I'm a kid running around and, do, you know, I meet other kids. But the, I remember the day that we were going to the airport because my parents explained that, okay, we're going to Canada. And I'm like, what is Canada? Who cares? I'm getting on a plane again. I'm eight years old. Life is an adventure. I'm, I'm going to discover. And I'm a curious child. I'm very curious by nature. So for me, it was like, okay, more fun coming up. So I remember coming to Montreal and it was June 17. Again, seeing all these Caucasian people <laughs> because in the camp, we're all Vietnamese and, you know, we have to share like a tiny space. I think we had a one bed for 10 people. It was just, that's, that was life in the camp. But now we're coming to Montreal and I think we were, our status was refugees and the government gave us a hotel room for two weeks. Oh my God. We were running around. People gave us cookies and candies. It, it was just, to me, it was fun. It was fun. But like I said, I was eight then. Now I'm putting myself in my mom's shoes and I'm thinking this poor woman. Oh my God. Eight kids and a husband. And she doesn't know what are we going to do next with our life. And yeah, that was... So at what age then, and I, so I assume then you've spoken to your mother about this trip or have you, have you ever actually spoke to her about it? At what age did that happen? Okay. Um, you know, okay. So growing up here, we don't talk about this, Neil, and this is very normal. You know, many Vietnamese people, VQ, if you will, once they make it out, you don't talk about it, but I'm just going to talk about my family. It's a subject we don't talk about. So I don't know if you, you must know Vietnam by now, the culture, you know, Vietnamese parents are very tiger parents. <laughs> so I, I think tiger mom, I think that's something we call a Vietnamese mom. We just want her kids to, you know, succeed, good future, good school, high grades and the whole shebang. So, you know, over here, we don't talk about it. So my parents, we grew up very poor. Okay. So they had to look for a job because they left all the papers and degrees. And so they had nothing to prove that they were professionals. And on top of that, you have the culture, you have the language and you have the weather. So, because I don't know, you remember Montreal? Yeah. yeah. Really cool in the winter. So my parents, while we were staying in that hotel for two weeks, they had to quickly talk to go get help because all we had was the clothes on our back. They didn't have a job. They, they had nothing, no money, no house, nothing. And my dad, his, my parents are very Catholic. They're not Buddhist. They're very Catholic. So my dad started to go to church and talk to the priests and people in the community. And so that's how we, they were able to find a small apartment. I just want to put you in a context. We were in a tiny apartment in a neighborhood that's not very, very, you know, favored, poor. We were 10 people in a five and a half. And that means three kids in one room, four kids in another room. Five and a half means you have five different rooms and half is the bathroom. So there's a kitchen, living room, and 
you know, two bedrooms and a half. So we were very tight, not as tight as the boat, but we were tight. <laughs> and so we grew up very poor. I remember eating peanut butter for breakfast, for lunch, and for supper on a piece of newspaper, not a table, not chairs. So brown rice and peanut butter, two things I don't eat. Okay. <laughs> I grew up eating peanut butter, three meals a day. But you know what we had? We had my parents loving us. They come home, they, they each had two jobs, working in manufacturers, working any odd jobs. They couldn't work like the professionals that they were in Vietnam. They, you know, did the kind of jobs just to put food on the table for the eight of us. And Neil, we all went to university, to McGill, we're all professionals. And so our university diplomas are my parents' pride and joy. <laughs> okay. yeah, no. it's, it's, they are so proud of us. But, but, you know, to answer your questions, when we come here, we didn't speak French. We didn't speak English. We understood French a little bit because we all went to private school in Saigon. So we understood French a little bit. So, yes, I was beat up at school because I couldn't speak the French that the kids in Quebec speaks. I don't know if you remember when you came to Montreal, the French here, it's, it's a bit of a slang. It's different from the French in France. And so we had to learn really fast. I had to learn to adapt really fast. And so I used to come home. I didn't want to be beat up in a schoolyard anymore. So I used to hold a mirror and, and speak the French that they were speaking. Like... This is how they speak French. And I needed to make friends in the schoolyard. And I love languages. So it wasn't hard for me. So yes, I became quite popular in my school because I was able to speak like them, play like them and mingle in. And that's my, my victory, by the way. Today, I can speak English, French, Quebec, Vietnamese. I, yeah, I... Masterpiece. Well, that's good that you can still speak Vietnamese then. You didn't lose that. Is that that the language that was spoken at home then, I would imagine? That's a miracle. That's a miracle, actually, because my mom doesn't understand today that I can speak, I can read, I can write. Granted, my level is probably not my parents' level, probably high school level, but I was featured on television in Vietnam. Three times on uh, VTC 10. Yes, three years ago. And, and my mom couldn't believe that I was speaking Vietnamese on TV. I mean, Vietnam people in Hanoi, my cousins and niece, they saw me on TV and they're like, oh my God, she speaks Vietnamese. <laughs> so I don't know why, Neil. I think my attachment to my roots is very strong. And in my siblings, in my family, I'm the one who went back to Vietnam in 1995. I'm the first one to make peace with my past. This is what I, I shared with you in 1995 when I decided to go back. It scared my family. My parents begged me not to go. They said, please don't go because it's, they, they were scared. They don't know what happened to Vietnam and what's going to happen if I go. But I went. I'm very stubborn. And I went. It's <laughs> quite an emotional roller coaster. Well, it's, it's something that has come up. And again, this is what's fascinated me and why I love this podcast. I've, I've, I've personally learned so much and I hope my listeners have as well, that the people who left are in, in 1975 or around that time, or many of them have never returned to Vietnam and won't because for them, why would they want to return to something that was so traumatic? And from what I know from the the next generation of Vietnamese people who, ha who I have interviewed. So off the top of my head, I remember like Nhi Mai, who's Swiss, was, well, Vietnamese parents and born in Switzerland. And when she told her family, like, oh, I want to go back to, to Vietnam, you know, at first they completely were 
horrified at the prospect because for them, and I know other people I've spoken to, it's the same. Their parents would just never, ever return here because for them, obviously, it's such a traumatic time. So then when their children are then like, well, hey, I want to go back and explore my route. But then what she explained once her parents, and she could prove to her parents, you know, it's a safe place. It's not like it was back then. It's completely different. The real thriving culture, obviously, in Saigon, that then they could see why she did that. And I think, and again, my memory is so bad, and we've had such so many amazing guests on, but if I think if I remember correctly, her parents eventually came to visit her, and, and she was able to show that. But so that was going to be my next question. So then tell me about that transformative trip in 1995. So in 1995, Neil, I was, I was a project manager, an engineer, because that's my background. I'm an electrical engineer that I studied at McGill University and I graduated with a bachelor in engineering. So in 1995, I was working at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Now, by then I had traveled the world. I, you know, that it came with the job. I traveled, I designed TV and radio studios, but I also traveled in the world for fun. That's one of the things that I, one of my values to travel and know people and eat the food and experience the planet. But in 1995, I, I was thinking, why don't I go to Vietnam? I've been to Europe, the US, I traveled. I want to go to Vietnam. And just that idea completely upset and freaked out my parents because they said, you are not going. And I kept saying, I'm going. So I bought my ticket and I went with my, my husband at the time we were dating. He was my boyfriend, but you know, and, and he's from Montreal. He's Scottish, Irish, Chinese, never traveled in Asia. So I sold him the idea that let's go to Vietnam. Now my parents said, don't go. And I said, I want to go. It's fine. I will be careful. And so this part will make you laugh new. I said, okay, mom and dad, I'm going to go and I'll make sure that I'll go visit your family in the North. And that made them happy. Because they, <laughs> yeah, right. So I sold them on that. And the second thing I sold them on, I said, I will dress like the locals. I will go very under the radar. And I asked my aunt to make me these brown pants and sh it's so ugly. Right. But I figured I'm going to blend in. It's stupid because you look at my face when I'm there, Neil, they can tell that I'm a bit cute or at least actually they thought I was half, half. They didn't think I was Vietnamese. And this is a funny part. I'll tell you in a minute. So I convinced my parents that I'm not going to dress like here. I'm going to be really low key. I'll blend in. I won't give my passport. I'll hide it. I'm going to make up some excuse if people ask for my, you know, like I list everything to make them feel like it's okay. And I promise I would. Not call them because that's expensive, but I will try to communicate with them in whatever shape and form I could as much as possible. So we got there. I, I believe it was December or Jan January 2000, uh, no, 1995. We arrived January 1995. I arrived at the airport in Noi, by Noi is the airport of Hanoi. And it wasn't the airport as it is today, right? It was like a hut. And I remember getting there and my friends who traveled before me, Canadian friends said, don't hide money because you might have to give some money. And I'm like, what? Anyways, I put $20 US in my sleeve and I went to the counter, gave me my, gave the passport to the, the person. He wouldn't give it back to me. And I kept looking at him and he said, do you speak Vietnamese? And I lied. I said, no, I kept <laughs> And then Right. Okay, is this the point where I give my $20, my $20? But then I, I kept thinking, 
No, I'm in my country, man. I mean, what, why? And so I, I stood there and eventually I got my passport back. And then that was it. So we come out of the airport and we got kidnapped. This is my Wait, what? dad. Now listen to this. My dad had written letters. Okay, I want to bring you to 1995. There's no social media, no email, no nothing. Okay. So my dad had written a letter to his nephews in a village in the north of Hanoi. And he didn't tell me. So we come out of the airport with our suitcase and we had these guys grabbing us, taking our suitcase, pushing us in this car and the car had no bottom. So we had to lift our legs. Otherwise you would touch the the street. Okay. So my husband was freaking, but my husband, my boyfriend today, my husband, Brian, Brian was freaking out because he's like, who are these people? So then I quickly spoke Vietnamese. I said, who are you? And that's when the driver says, oh, I'm your cousin. Your dad sent us. <laughs> you know, I, I swear to you that I was in a movie. I, I was weddings. <laughs> you were like, what? What is happening? So then they took us to the village. And the whole time we had to hold our legs because that's not bottom. And the car, it was like one of these Russian cars, old cars, and there was no highway. So along the road, they had to to honk so much because I don't know, you see pigs, you see cows, it's crazy. It was, we we were holding each other's hands so hard, not circulation. And my husband kept, Brian kept telling me, are we going to make it there alive? And I, <laughs> at this point, just pray, just hope. So we make it there and everybody came to greet us. All the little villages next to my dad's village, they came and they were touching my, my, my Brian. They were touching my boyfriend because they've never seen a tall guy. He looks Caucasian to them. Even if he has Chinese in his blood, he looks white. And so they were asking me 5 million questions and I had to go to everybody's house in the villages and have tea and they had no bathroom. So that was a huge challenge. <laughs> yes, I know you can laugh because you were not in my shoes. So, but it was emotional, Neil. So this is, this is 1995. Okay. My first my first time back living that kind of experience, but I was crying at the same time because they were telling us about what happened after 1975 and how poor they are. And I can clearly see how poor they are. And I can see kids following me. The kids were wonderful. I took pictures of them and they, they, they were just following us and touching us and hello, hello, how are you? How are you? Like, you know, that's all they knew how to say. And it was so emotional for us. So, yeah, so it's a lot of tea drinking, eating, and then giving them some money and then saying goodbye. So they sent one boy with us to be, to protect us for the rest of the trip. And he had a sick low, I think he had a sick low or something. So we traveled from Hanoi all the way to Saigon. And that was we were supposed to be there for five weeks, Nil, and we only stayed for three weeks. And I'll tell you why. It was so emotional for me to see families after 20 years and them telling me all these horror stories. I couldn't take it after three weeks. So I cut, I cut my trip short after three weeks and I told Brian, I said, take me somewhere where I don't speak the language, where I cannot understand. So we went to Bangkok. <laughs> we went to Thailand. So we, we were supposed to be in Vietnam for five and we stayed for three and on my pictures, you see either I cry or I eat. So either Zuni's eating or Zuni's crying. So I had these swollen eyes or I was eating because the food is so bloody good. I, everything comes back to me, right? The smell, 
walking on the street and smelling, you know, the sandwiches and the hams and the, the snacks. And I just, all I did was crying and eating. Honestly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like if you were to, your story about going out to the village and uh, your husband's skin being touched and, and being fed tea, like this has not changed. Like for many people still, you still hear these same kind of uh, stories that happen. So it's funny that all the way back then, it's interesting. You talk about how poor it is being back in, in 1995, because recently I called out somebody on Facebook who was claiming that there were no obese children in Vietnam in 1995 because there was no McDonald's. And so I just quickly Googled and, and then to confirm and, and I responded to him and I was like, I think it's because in 1995, 50% of the population were living below the poverty line is why there was no obese children, not because there was no McDonald's. Like, let's not like conflate these two issues. Like Vietnam had extreme poverty. So that must have been really difficult to see. And was that unexpected then? Well, for me, you know, I had friends, Canadian friends who traveled because they were teaching in Japan. So they showed me pictures of Vietnam, but obviously they showed me pictures of the beach. And so in 1995, when I went, I did not know I was going to be kidnapped by people <laughs> in my dad's village. And so it was a shock. For me, it was a shock to go there and see how poor they are. You know, the the I mean, they had holes. And my dad sends money. My parents send money, whatever they can. Half of it probably reached them, half not. I don't know where the other half goes, but <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> but the kids were, you know, it's cold, eh? It's cold in January in the north, as as you know. And they had, you know, scarf and they had many layers. They ran around barefoot. And so I see things like that. And it really shocked me, especially because I come from Montreal and I grew up here. And, you know, it's it's Canada, man. I mean, you know, you're, you're, no matter where you go, you can still get help. And so I, I've never seen that. So 1995, when I go there, I came back and that's when I was crying so much. And I, I, and I think that was the beginning of me wanting to do something to help Vietnam. So he said that's, that seed was planted in my head. Because before 1995, Neil, I was this project manager. I had the best career, you know, five weeks vacation, working for a big corporate and corner office traveling. You know, I, I had a really good life. And in my mind, I was going to be vice president of engineering. Like I, I was, you know, I had a good career, but seeing what I saw in 1995, it kind of, you know, really puts the perspective back in your life and your ambition. So when I came back from that trip, I was thinking, oh my God, you know, when you stand in a supermarket here and you have like millions of cereal boxes and cookies, not millions, but so many. And in Vietnam, I mean, they, 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 you know, I see people like looking through garbage or at, it's, it's day and night. Mm. And that trip really brought me back down to like, you know, grounded me. So when I came back, I think my ambition was not the same. I didn't care about, you know, that going up the corporate ladder or becoming a VP engineering. I was thinking, what is it that I can do? What is it that I can do in my life? So this is 1995. And in 1997, I resigned, you know, I resigned. They didn't understand. I was promoted all the time. I was one of the best. And I quit my job because I wanted to move 
back to Vietnam. So I convinced my husband because by then Brian and I were married and I said, Brian, can you see if your work can give you a contract in Vietnam? Because he works for Ericsson, big company in uh, telecommunications. So we asked and they said, no, we don't need you in Vietnam. However, are you interested in Hong Kong? And my husband being half Chinese, quarter Scottish, Irish, he says, okay, yeah, let's try Hong Kong. So he asked me, do you want to move to Hong Kong? And I said, okay, close enough to Vietnam. Let's go. So you know what? I, we sold everything. I quit my job. My families and friends were so sad, but I said, I need to do this. I need to listen to that voice inside of me and go back to Vietnam and see what is it that I can do. So we moved to Hong Kong. And I, I, we were expats for three, three years, almost three years. My son was born, Connor. Connor is my, my son and he's made in Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> he was conceived and born in Hong Kong. And while we were in Hong Kong, I had new jobs. I, I accepted to go there and I accepted to, you know, be there. My husband was working. So two weeks into living in Hong Kong, I'm going to make you laugh, Neil, again. We were living in a hotel. Because, you know, the company was shipping our stuff by boats, right? So we were living in a hotel waiting for our stuff to arrive and uh, finding a place. And so I was, you know, just walking around Hong Kong with a t-shirt, jeans. You know, I didn't, I didn't look like, I, I looked like a tourist, I think. So I walked into this really nice furniture store in, uh, I think it, in uh, Repulse, no, Wan Chai, one, near Wan Chai. And I wanted to buy this beautiful coffee table. And the owner tapped on my shoulder and asked me to leave. And I didn't speak any Chinese, but I'm like, what, what? No, I, I like this table. And she said something, but I understood like, no, no, you are Ama. Like she thought I was Filipino nanny. She says, you cannot afford this. Go, go. Like she posted me out of the store. Wow. And I didn't understand. I'm like, but I want this. And that was my first experience. So all of a sudden, you know how you move to a new country? I'm sure you went through that with your wife. You know that honeymoon period when you're like, oh, wow, I'm here. There's so much to discover. When that killed it for me. <laughs> then after that day, I'm like, oh boy, did I make the right decision? Yeah, yeah. But it's okay. I went to another store. I got another table. So it- oh, I, I, I was going to say you should have done like a, a pretty woman moment, you know, walk back in with your husband and put your credit card down and be like, no, I want that table. And like, I did. the woman. I did. I did. I didn't buy from her. But later on, I went back with a friend and we were going out that day to Lang Kwai Fong and we were well-dressed, jewelries and all dolled up. And I walked in there <laughs> and I said, do you remember me? I did that thing. No way. I understand that I wanted to buy from you, but you didn't sell it to me. I live in Repulse Bay with all the rich people and I back next door. I did tell her. And she, her face just went like, <laughs> Amazing. That's awesome. So I did. <laughs> so then, so from Hong Kong, then you moved back to Vietnam eventually, or you commuted between the two? No, no, but I did something even better. So, so I, one day I was waiting for the subway in Hong Kong and I saw this magazine next to me. We were still living in a hotel. You know, this is the third week. So I, I was looking at the magazine. It's for expats. It's in English. And then I go to the end where they had these job ads. And then they, they, I saw something that looking for project coordinator in refugee camp. I, Neil, I was so, like, I thought it was so twilight zone. I, I closed it and I left it there. And then the, the subway arrived. So I was about to step in the subway, but I ran back and I grabbed the magazine and I, I went back to the hotel. 
And I called that number and I kept hanging up. I called, I hang up, I called, I hang up. The lady on the other side must think I'm crazy because I think after three, four times, she says, did you call and hang up? And I said, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm nervous. And so I explained to her, she's, she's British and she's the director for this organization called Treats. And I said, I saw your ad and I was a kid in that refugee camp. And that's why I'm so nervous to talk to you. So anyways, we had a conversation slash interview and she says, we want to hire you. And I says, I will do it, but only with the condition that you're not paying me. I want to do it as a volunteer, just pay for my transportation and whatever I need. And so I did that for a year now. I worked in refugee camps and I recruited volunteers from Australia, France, Canada, America. I, I recruited volunteers to help me go into these refugee camps where I used to be. Like I went into the same refugee camp and I just stood there and I was 30 years old, right? 1997, I was 30 and I just stood there and I'm like, oh my God, it's still poor and these people are still there and I could have been one of them. So this is where I think I had a bit of closure and I decided to pour all my efforts as a project manager into helping them, taking the kids out. So I did all kinds of activities and, and that was the year that I, yeah, 1997 to 98. And we witnessed the handover, you know, it's the second oh, Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, 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 yeah. Yeah. Chris Patton, right? That was the governor. Was that right? Yes. Yes. But that's amazing for me. You know, doing that kind of work brought peace back into my life. Peace. And I got to meet, make so many friends. So while my husband was working, you know, really hard because he was like, in marketing or, you know, with Ericsson Hong Kong, I was doing, you know, the other thing, taking the kids out, giving them food, helping them creating educational program with the volunteers for them, taking mothers to hospital to visit their, their kids. It's things like that that I did, which is completely opposite from the kind of career I had in Montreal. But that, that really fulfilled like something that was missing in here. And it allows me to, you know, have closure with my past. And so I didn't move to Vietnam. I did visit Vietnam during my stay in Hong Kong. But just doing that kind of work for the Vietnamese refugees in Hong Kong, it was enough. It was enough for me, you know. And, you know, once I had my son, we decided to move back because our families are here and I wanted him to have Canadian roots. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So we what an incredible story. Thank you so, so much for sharing. That is, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm excited to see when they make the movie of your life, put it that way. It's so interesting. Thank you so much. No, but you know, all of that, everything I'm telling you, it's that little seed that I planted in my own head until I decided one day that, okay, I've been working with women entrepreneurs in Montreal, Canada. Why don't I go and share a bit of that in Vietnam? Because I kept thinking all this time, you know, I'm 55. So three years ago, I thought to myself, I wonder what would it be like if I stayed in Vietnam? Would I have become an entrepreneur, a speaker, a coach, a mentor? And so that curiosity pulled me. And so I had the idea one day, why don't I go and make a documentary movie in Vietnam? Again, this, this completely shocked everybody in my community because they said, why Vietnam? You are doing well here. You have so many women you're helping. But I told them, I said, I want to connect Vietnam and Canada, the two countries that really made me who I am today. So I want to go and shine the light on Vietnamese women. And, and Neil, when I went, I had 
nobody to interview. This is why I called the movie How She Dares. You know, I called it How She Dares because I was thinking about the women who are daring with their courage in Vietnam. But then at the end of the day, I'm the one who kind of dared to go to jump and trust that the net will appear once I jump. And, and that's the, the kind of, you know, personality that I have. And that's why I'm fit to be an entrepreneur because I have to jump trusting that only if you jump, you know, something will happen. You have to take the risk. So I took the risk to go to Vietnam. I did a quick, so how do you call crowdfunding campaign? You know, I got a few thousand dollars so that I can go. So we were three women, me, Camille Laurent, a famous YouTuber from France, and my daughter Maggie, who never set foot anywhere but Disneyland, who doesn't speak Vietnamese. And so the three of us decided to go and interview seven women. So when we made it to Saigon that night, I went on social media and I looked Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, everywhere. And I started to look for women that I considered were brave enough to switch career, to start this social enterprise, to do something for Vietnam. And along the way, I found the seven women. You know, when I went, I had nobody. So I have to say social media is just amazing to help you connect, you know, with people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I hope one day maybe you'll invite some of those women onto your podcast. Yeah, one definitely is, connect with. Yeah. One is from Da Nang, Helen, a YouTuber. Okay. She's a famous YouTuber for food in Vietnam. And I was. Yeah, no, it's all about connections. I think, I don't know if this is well known. Maybe I just say that because I live here and I see it. But from everything you've described, from the first moment you've started speaking to describing your mom and yourself and your life, Vietnamese women are so strong. It is incredible. And I worked at a, a company here and it, kind of blew me away nearly i think nine out of the 10 senior managers including the ceo were all female which i don't think would happen in many other countries and i don't know what other companies are like because i've only really worked for one big company here but at this company it was run by women and i thought about this just recently actually right so it's quite you this might make you laugh i thought about all the vietnamese people that i've interviewed on this podcast whether they're VQ, Vietnamese overseas, or they're, they're Vietnamese born and bred. And I was like, Neil, you've interviewed so many women. And so now it's on my radar. I'm trying to find Vietnamese men to interview. And now look, I'm not saying that there's not Vietnamese men doing like amazing things. I'm sure they are. But when I open my eyes and when I cast the net or when I'm looking for guests, it's, it always seems to be a Vietnamese women who's just doing incredible things, whether it's Tracy Win Mang and Vietnamese boat people or Sarah Win with a Win Coffee Supply or yourself with your documentary and your movie and then go back through and through all these guests. I've had Levi Oi, who's now a kind of international DJ, Nhi Mai, who's come here and now has a YouTube channel. And you think, uh, so again, I always think everything's from your own perspective, right? So maybe I'm just narrowed. I only have a narrow perspective on that. And I'm sure Vietnamese men are incredible as well. So I never want to be seen to be putting anyone down. But I think even from this conversation just reaffirms everything your mom did. Vietnamese women are badass and they do incredible things. You know what? Even me, Neil, I'm surprised when I go back. You know, when we were there, I remember we were in and uh, so we took this, one of these, I don't know, this long boat. And you know how the lady is just like, you know, rowing. 
Mm. We were like five or six sitting in there with our gears. Yeah, I've done that as well, yeah. And she is like slim and just rolling and smiling. I keep turning back. I and I try to do it. Forget it. I would break my shoulder. Yeah. I don't know. So when you talk about strength, I know what you mean. But it it same here. And I'm a Vietnamese woman. And every time I go back to Vietnam, and I've been many, many times, I'm always amazed at how strong they are yeah. mentally, emotionally. I, I think it's the, the small country, Vietnam, had been so pursued by so many other countries, you know. The Japanese, the Chinese, the French, I don't know who else went. And I think what it did to the people, if you ask me, it made them strong and resilient, always ready to build again, build up again. And the women, I think it's always about, you know, selling something, starting something. And when I interviewed them, I asked, how can more women learn English to do business? And they said, oh, the men, they're so lazy. They just sit there smoking drink. I don't want to say that all men are like that. I'm telling you what the women. No, I think it's probably a bit of quite a lot of truth to that. Um, absolutely. And I, I was going to say, even so, I, obviously, so I, I kind of mentioned I'm a, a comedian and I put on comedy shows. So I work a lot with people in the food and beverage industry here, people that put on restaurants. And even as we're talking, I'm thinking about it. Nearly every restaurant manager that I deal with, that I work with, is a, a Vietnamese woman. There's very few. Vietnamese men that I come across with anyway. So again, this is only from my perspective, so I don't know if it's true or not, but they're all these young, strong Vietnamese women. And what makes me laugh as well, and you probably have noticed this as well, many of the establishments here that are run by always a male expat who often then have their Vietnamese partner. Who's the one that really runs the business though? And, you know, because when I talk to them and a lot, I know a lot of them and they'll be like, oh, no, I mean, yeah, it's my wife is the one that's incredible. My wife is the one that it, that gets things done, you know. So, yeah, it's a, definitely. A no, I, I, I hear you. When my niece, one of my nieces is in Hanoi and her and her husband, three kids, they are running well. The pandemic hit them a little bit, but before the pandemic, they were quite successful. They were selling things online, equipment, and she was the marketing salesperson. So the phone rings, it's her, but Bao is the one who fixes things. And so I, I, I think that's uh, <laughs> the typical couple. So she would be in the front communicating. She's learning English online. She does all the social media, the ads, and he would do all the technical stuff in the back. I like you giving the. I like that you're giving the meal some credit. Now that's good of you. So Zuni, thank you so so much. I I was so excited for this interview when I learned a bit about your background and you are more compelling and captivating than I could have imagined. So thank you so so much for sharing this story with me and with our listeners. You've given, as I said, the Vietnamese boat people and the refugee crisis from 1975 and after is something that has come up um, really often and. To hear your in-depth story of what it actually, what you actually went through, is is incredible, and it gave me shivers for most of the time you were talking because I, I just can't imagine that you went through that. But it's really beautiful that you have this. Mate, you are at that lucky age of being eight years old, so it was just a big playground. Obviously, I'm sure it would have been much more difficult for your parents and your and your family. And so I hope that they are safe and well and happy with the, the life that they managed to to get to. So that's really really encouraging. So. Before we go to ask the final, I'm going to ask you the final questions that I ask everyone at the end of every episode. Tell 
Anyone listening, how can they follow you, find you, support you? What's next with the documentary? Tell people all about you. Okay, well, again, thank you, Neil. If I, I, I forget, thank you again for this amazing opportunity. It's always nice for me to, you know, to be able to share my, my voice and my story like this. But the purpose behind my documentary project, which is really a personal passion project. And so it's taking, you know, I almost don't want to get it out there because I'm holding on to it because I keep adding and adding more things to it. And what I realize is that there's also space for me in this movie to add my story. And that's why it's taking so long. I want to bring in the identity that you lose along the way when you move to another country. You know, it doesn't matter if you're both people or you're a third country kid, but if if you move to something uh, outside of your comfort zone, then, you know, the movie is just to find back your voice and use that voice. So the purpose of How She Dares, my documentary project, is really to inspire women around the world and men, anyone. (laughs) We need to inspire more men. They're useless. The women are doing fine. We need to inspire more men. Yes. No, because, you know. You have a sister, you have a wife, or you have a mother, like anybody, you know. So for me, I want to encourage women to find their voice and use their voice. Because, you know, when you're a baby, the first thing that gave you, well, power is when you let out that voice. And I found my voice and I used it to be a speaker, to train, to teach, to mentor, to coach. But I am using that voice to help others find their voice. And so this movie, How She Dares, is really about that. Inspire you to dare, to be brave, to be courageous, to find your path, own it, and embrace it. And and that's what it's about. And I started with Vietnam because it's so part of me. That's why. But I'm making more. I'm making more documentaries. But I wanted to start with my country, with my beloved Vietnam. When is it coming out? Next year, next year, <laughs> because I'm I'm still in the post production, adding more stuff to it. But next year, I intend to travel. I'm vaccinated, and uh, I have faith that I will be able to travel again next year because I'm invited in Vietnam, Hanoi University. The dean asked me to come and lecture and share my journeys, and so I would love to show this movie in the Women Museum in Hanoi. I want to travel in Vietnam and just share this movie with women entrepreneurs and everybody in Vietnam. Yeah, no, no. So that's the goal. How she dares? I created yeah, a Facebook page. Yes. So you know, just Google Zuning Win and How She Dares and online. Online. Well, for anyone who's watching or listening, just remember. I'll put the link in the, the show notes in the description. So make sure you go check that out. Follow it on Facebook. And we will look out for when you can come back to Vietnam because we are hearing that international travel may resume next year, which is very, very exciting. So if you can make it here, I'll be here waiting and we can definitely catch up. So I'll ask you and um, the questions I ask everyone at the end of each episode. First one, if you were in Vietnam right now and you could jump on the back of a bike, where would you go? I would go to Namaha, which is the village uh, near Namding, where my dad is from. I would go there. I find peace there. I find families and the kids are running after me when I'm on the bike. And it's, it's, it feels like home. So I would get on a bicycle, not a motorbike. I don't know how to use a motorbike, but I, I love bicycles. And I would be cycling around the village in Namaha. Awesome. I love that. That's a great answer. 
Now uh, we we keep obviously COVID and quarantine and all of this lockdown chat to a minimum, but we've all gone through the most difficult times of our lives and we've all experienced lockdowns at some point. What was the most challenging thing about lockdown for you? I mean, aside not being able to hug my parents and my husband's parents, I think that's what I find the hardest in COVID to not be able to be with families and hug them in your arms. And But now we're all vaccinated, so it's better. But aside from that family and personal side, I really, really miss traveling and meeting people. And we could have a coffee right now, face-to-face, Neil, but I'm happy to see you on my screen. <laughs> it, it would be even better to to see you in three dimensions and to travel. And, you know, I used to travel and give keynotes and speeches. And, and I love Zoom, but it's not the same. No, so well, yeah, so that I find that tough. Yeah. Well, what has been the best thing about lockdown for you? Well, funny enough, thanks to Zoom, <laughs> or thanks to, you know, all the platforms that allow us to connect, the best thing I would say is that it gave me more time. It gave me more time because I don't have to travel. I can travel online and just hop on Zoom or, you know, Meet or Google or Skype. And then, you know, it takes a few seconds and that's where I am. So I think it's, you know, my mindset is different now. I mean, because it's been almost two years, we don't have a choice. So, you know, the best thing is that it gave me more time and more time also to be with my families, because before that, we're everywhere, we're not at home. And yeah, and meet people like you and Lourdes and uh, I'm so, so grateful, very grateful. Yeah. Well, you've got to find the positives and there the have, the have been positives throughout this and the connection with people from around the world has been a, a really big one. Same, same for me as well. And I spoke to somebody recently who said to me that they've actually spoken to their parents more during lockdown than at any other point in their life. So, you know, things like that have happened, which is nice. Now, next question. What in Vietnam shocks you the most? This is going to sound corny, but... Do you know the amount of bikes? <laughs> it still shocks me. It still shocks me. And, and you know, I was there in 2019 before the pandemic and sitting in the back of a grab or my cousin's motorbike. Every time I'm amazed at the amount of bikes of, like next to me. Like I, I still feel like I'm in a dream. It just feels so real to me. So that still shocks me for some reason. I mean, I've been here five years and it still shocks me as well. So, I mean, it shocks me most um, because we were in lockdown for so long and now I've gotten back on the bike and we can travel. And I just, you forget how crazy it is when I see like a bike coming towards me driving down the wrong side or the bike just takes a U-turn in the middle of the highway and decides that they want to go the other direction. It's like, oh my goodness. So I'm still shocked by that every day. Now, what, what pleasantly surprises you about Vietnam the most? This, I, there could be so many answers to that, I swear. But what surprises me, because, you know, 1995, when I went back, I didn't feel like I belong. I really didn't feel like I belong. In fact, people thought I was either Chinese, half-half. But, you know, now I'm back there and I feel like I belong. VQ or not, I feel like I'm part of the communities that I, that I speak to or work with or collaborate with. And that surprises me because if I think back about 1995, 
I kept thinking, oh my God, will they ever accept me back? Because I did not choose to leave. I was a kid, but now I'm here and I want to do things. I want to help you rebuild. I want to do amazing things with all the communities there. But now I'm pleasantly surprised that when I'm there, I'm just one of them. (laughs) Beautiful. What a beautiful way to finish a beautiful episode. Zuni, thank you so much again for joining us on 7 Million Bytes of Vietnam podcast. It has been unbelievable to share your story. Thank you so much, Neil. You are making my week. Imagine I'm starting Monday with Neil on 7 Million Bytes. I'm going to be smiling for the rest of the week. And I want to share, I want to talk about this on, on my, you know, in my communities, whenever you're ready and whenever I'm allowed to. <laughs> please do, please do it. Very proud of that. This little podcast is that it's been an amazing platform to share these stories. And you nailed it's amazing what you're doing. I really applaud and I have so much respect for what you are doing. And especially, I just want to add this before we wrap up because, uh, you know, some of the Vietnamese, we made it out, you know, like myself. But I find that, like, even in Montreal, some of the Vietnamese people, they are questioning why I'm doing this. Why am I making a movie? Why am I going back to Vietnam? Because for them, it's like, you know, they left and they don't want to have anything to do with and 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 having somebody like you to shine the light on on us sharing our journeys, our stories and talking about, you know, what we're doing now to maybe help out and give back. I think it's it's just there's no word. It's just amazing. So thank you for this, Ed. (laughs) You're very welcome. You put a big smile on my face as well. So thank you so, so much. So it's the start of your day in Canada. You have Monday morning. I have Monday night. Um, Thank you so much again. And I will be definitely speaking to you in the future and hopefully seeing you next year. Thank you, Neil. Have an amazing week. (laughs) You too. Thank you, Zuri. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. We hope you enjoy hearing our guest stories. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and turn on notifications so you never miss a new episode. Thank you so much to our producer, Lewis Wright, for making sure the show sounds as good as possible for you. And also a big thanks to the 7 Million Bikes community members and everyone who supports us. Don't forget, if you haven't already, you can join the community today. The link is in the description and you'll get free event tickets, free 7 million bikes face mask and invites to special member events. Also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and I'm still ashamed to say this, TikTok. Most of all, if you can, please donate to Saigon Children's Charity or Blue Dragons Children Foundation's COVID appeals. Remember, we have six seasons of stories to share with you, so check them out if you haven't already, and we hope you can listen to future episodes too so you can laugh, connect, and discover. Cheers.
I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're like me, you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public Wi-Fi. This opens you up to digital snoopers. It's a massive problem. It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease, and I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers.